This is Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host Dr. Reed Robison and I are joined by Dr. Alan Davis to talk all things shamanism. Alan is a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician and shamanic practitioner. Alan helps us explore the roots and practice of what he calls core shamanism, shamanism as it relates to psychedelic medicine, shamanism's ties to various cultural traditions, and the overlap and integration between shamanism and Western medicine. We had so much fun talking to Alan. He's got a great spirit, a great laugh, a great sense of humor. He's smart, compassionate, and really has a ton of experience with shamanic practices. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did and as much as Reed did. Please enjoy. Welcome back, everybody, to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. Hello. We're here again. Dr. Steve Thayer, Dr. Reed Robinson, and today we were joined by Dr. Alan Davis. I said your name right, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I had this this brain fart immediately. <laughs> I have this huge paranoia because I, you know, I'm a mental health professional and I'm with people and they're super vulnerable and I have a terrible memory for names and so I'm always really afraid about forgetting names. Anyway, with that uh, unnecessary preamble, <laughs> would you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm a physician, a physical medicine and rehabilitation, and I mostly do hospital work. Um, but what I'm here to talk about today is sort of the blending of working inside healthcare as a traditional clinician, uh, and bringing in shamanism to that work. Yeah, this is something I'm really curious about, have very little knowledge about, but there are some interesting overlaps with, you know, the title of our podcast is Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, and, you know, what, when and we really mean psychedelic in the true sense of the word, like wandering in the mind, the manifestation of the mind, not just the medicines that make you have interesting journeys. So mm-hmm. I'm curious about the overlaps between shamanism, you know, uh, and psychedelic medicine. We'll talk about non-ordinary states of consciousness. It'll be a good conversation. But uh, why don't we start, if you're okay, with uh, an exploration of what shamanism means? Because I think for a lot of people in our audience... They think of the word shaman, and a variety of images show up in their mind. So mm. educate us, Alan. What, what is shamanism? Well, the, the shamanism, what's a shaman? It's sort of like, it's be, the word has uh, got such a broad meaning now because it's really part of our pop culture. Um, somebody sees somebody who thinks they're really cool and like, he's a shaman doing whatever <laughs> he's doing. But... Um, from a place of indigenous wisdom or somebody who studies shamanism, um, you could say um, shamanism is really working with energy. We're really working in the non-physical realm. One of my teachers, Sandra Ingerman, would say, we are gardeners of energy. Mm-hmm. And it's really working in that space. Um, from an indigenous perspective, you're working with like, you could say helping spirits, but when you strip it all away, it's sort of an intelligent energy that is throughout all of creation, and we work with that energy. 
That being said, I wouldn't say we're like energy workers because mm-hmm. it's a little bit different approach than an energy worker, but it is working with energy to shift things. Um, you could say uh, the initiation process of a shaman is like gathering power to be able to affect change on an energy energetic level. Hmm. Well, this is really interesting. I have so many questions. Yeah. But I'll try to... <laughs> Uh, pace myself. Tone here. it down, Reed. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I'm just thinking of the shamanic path, like the role of, uh, well, do you have to get struck by lightning to be a shaman, for example? <laughs> mm. What's the role of madness? How, what's the, what's the path of a shaman like? And uh, what are the differences between indigenous shamanism and, say, core shamanism? Mm. Uh, if, if you could touch on that. Great question. Um, so from in ancient times a shaman was someone who um, did have a series of initiations often and even in modern day um, indigenous shamanism like tibetan shamanism there is like it's a bloodline so it is like direct from parent to child usually father to son um and they, like in Tibetan shamanism, they are waiting for a sign that that child is going to be a shaman. Now, let's just take a step back and explain that shaman is a very specific word to one culture. That is like like an indigenous part of Russia, where that word comes from. And every mm-hmm. indigenous culture has their own word. But that is the generic word that we use in our society now as shaman. But a Native American wouldn't call their medicine person a shaman. Mm-hmm. They have their own, as somebody who's in <clears throat> South America and in, you know, working in the mountains or in the jungles wouldn't call their person that does this work a shaman. Mm-hmm. But, but we're just for the sake of everybody knowing what we're talking about, we're going to use the word. But so traditionally, the, um, there was a series of initiations and often near-death experiences. One of the things that may have um, brought this person's potential as a shaman in an indigenous culture was going crazy. Mm-hmm. In an indigenous culture, completely losing your marbles could have been a sign that this person may have a special connection with the helping spirits or something beyond, and maybe a sign that they're showing that they have the beginnings of some power. Mm. So it's often a series of initiations, some of them some of them being spontaneous, like being struck by lightning or having a near-death experience of some other way that just happens to you. Others created by your culture to see if you have the metal to do this work. Mm-hmm. Placed in difficult situations like an initiation of like, and they even some of the other similar um, pathways, like they'll put you in freezing cold rags or some like, mm. like, you know, that's part of like the Tibetan cult that could be part of their um, priestly thing. But it's a similar thing, putting you through the tests to see if you mm. are worthy and will be able to be the person for the community. Because in the end, 
in the, the oldest roots of shamanism, the sh- if it weren't for shamanism, humans wouldn't be alive nowadays because the person that exhibited the special traits of being to connect to something beyond themselves was the one that could go out and connect with the animals so that there was food, yeah. connect with the plants so that they could survive as a species or work with the spirits of nature, the weather. This is the roots of shamanism. It's the oldest spiritual practice, tens of thousands of years old. That being said, the, the, if you strip away the cultural trappings of shamanism, you have what, is, what was popularized by Michael Harner called core shamanism. And what Michael did was say, hmm, what is sort of common when you look at shamanic cultures uh, the world over? And what he found common were was, number one, was the non-ordinary state of consciousness. And he mm-hmm. said, and, you, and working in the foundation for shamanic studies, that's his organization, one of the first things you do, the very first workshop you take is learning how to journey. That is like your 101. And learning how to journey is getting in that non-ordinary reality state. And then the other, his, the core kind of healing work is that is common would be like divination work, finding information in that non-ordinary state, doing a power animal retrieval, which is finding like one of those, one of those energy bits that are attached to your soul. You personally have your own group that are here to support your soul's journey or soul retrieval, where there's a part of you that's not accessible, um, doing uh, extraction work, which is removing something that is in your energy field that's impeding the flow Mm. of the energy and causing you distress. So these are like common things that that one way or another can be seen across cultures. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. Working with the spirits of nature would also be another one. So these are... But core shamanism... You don't have to be of the culture to explore core shamanism, which, which as a pe- person from the United States is very appealing because I'm a mutt, like many Americans. <laughs> I'm, you know, right. I'm like my mother's family's from one place, my father's family's from multiple multiple places, and if I were to say, well, if I were going to explore my indigenous roots, it would be a little confused mess. Mm. So, so that's uh, that's. That, but core shaman, shamanism was my way into shamanic practice. So it's independent of any particular ideology. Uh, you know, you don't have to be of a, of a, of a particular cultural or religious background. It's got, it sounds like it has some fundamental principles that are broadly applicable. Yeah, I think um, one, of the, one of the core things would be, yes, there is no... The difference between shamanism as a spiritual practice and religion is there is no required belief system. You do mm-hmm. not have to believe anything. And if and most of my shamanic teachers would say, don't believe anything. The only thing that matters is your experience. Hmm. You learn how to trust your own experience and learn directly from that. So it is a path of revelation, we would say. Mm. So how does that work with, say, ayahuasca as an example? You know, assuming that the ayahuasquero is the shaman in this case, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, they say that originally they would drink the medicine 
the participants would go sit there in ceremony and receive the divination, the teachings, the insight. Uh, but now, uh, in part perhaps because of, uh, you know, people from the U.S. and Canada going down and seeking this and saying, hey, I want the medicine, um, it becomes more of a participatory experience with the medicine. I don't mm. know if that's if that's accurate or not. That's what people talk about. But I'm wondering how, if it's about not believing and just not needing to believe anything, but about the experience, um, how did it work back then? Uh, was everyone just open to the insight of the shaman um, with respect to their experience, their life? Mm. That's a, another great question. So that really, that the invitation to that question is like, how did people traditionally view ceremony? Mm -hmm. Right? So ceremony, like nowadays, ceremony, the, we have a lot of ceremonies. But I would say the big difference between now and then is that if you were an indigenous culture and you were going to participate in any kind of a ceremony, if you were not completely on board with what that ceremony was for, why you were going, what you were supposed to get out of it, you would know intuitively that you could not participate. Everybody has to have a clean mind going into ceremony. Mm. So in those days, they would be, the people themselves would come prepared as an open channel to mm -hmm. receive this, the wisdom of the plants as taught by their shaman. So in a clean mind, meaning like an empty cup, uh, like a receptive uh, mindset, mindset going into it, where they're just mm -hmm. open to receive. Yeah, uh, well, like, like if I were going to do a plant medicine ceremony now, back mm -hmm. then, I couldn't go in, I would not consider going in thinking like, eh, maybe this is a bunch of baloney. Yeah. I would I would absolutely recuse myself. I would not go if I had any doubt about what this was for and my role because the community played a key part yeah. in the ceremony. They were, you know, it was not like you're just going we're like, well, let's see what happens. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It was more of like you're there for a purpose and the purpose is maybe healing somebody or maybe connecting with the spirits of the place because something was needed. But now it's a little different. Our skeptical society perhaps goes down to the jungle seeking who the hell knows what. They, they want healing or something, but the medicine plays a different role in breaking through that, those walls of skepticism, resistance, uh, lack of openness perhaps? Perhaps. I would... I would uh... The medicine, taking the medicine as an individual is very, is, is a probably, you know, I wasn't back, I wasn't around back then. At least I don't remember that life. Perhaps I was. <laughs> but um, nowadays, people are going as seekers still. You know, most mm -hmm. people are going to, if they're going to spend the time and the money to go down to the jungle, they're seeking something. They may not even know what they're seeking. And the and they may not even have a clear intention of what they're going down for they just may have this like need they just may yeah. have a drive and a calling 
may mm-hmm. just have that. Um, and in and in that case, the way it's set up is still really important. You know, you still have a good facilitator, a tightly held container, mm-hmm. and everybody is a, is told how they're supposed to behave, how they're supposed to show up. So there is some preparation, often dietary and, you know, yep. and attitudes and, you know, abstaining from this and things of that sort. But the, but for teacher plants, ayahuasca being one of them, the teaching comes directly from the plant. And your attitude still makes a big difference. For example, with ayahuasca, um, most plant medicine, there's an invitation to work with it. And if there's a lot of fear going into it, you, the experience is very different than being willing to work with it. For example, so mm-hmm. the fear of throwing up. People, you know, if, if you're one of the many people that are like, I don't want to throw up, I don't want to throw up, I can't do this, I can't do this. And the whole focus is like, just gripping, you know, the chair and saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. Then you have a very different experience than, oh, you can, there is a, there's an opportunity for like to work with this. Uh, Oh, okay. So if I just let go of the fear of vomiting or just say, you know, if I throw up, it's, it's okay. It's a very different experience. So yeah. So the way you go into it is very important, and the, and everybody gets different teachings. You know, if you've done the same medicine many times, you get different experience oh, yeah. every time. Sometimes it's powerful and life changing, and sometimes it's you feel like you just didn't lift off. <laughs> it's just different. So a, a throwing up story, just to throw in here, is I was um, out of the country working with ayahuasca, actually helping as a co-therapist and medical support for a number of ceremonies, but then got to participate towards the end, like the last night or two. And the the shaman, who I knew quite well by then, um, had me come up, and he was doing some chanting. I was on the medicine mid-ceremony, and I'm sitting there, and he's uh, Shipibo chanting, and it was powerful. That that brings a wave of nausea for me, like something's there's energy moving, um, but I have this natural resistance to vomiting. Like I, I didn't even bring my bucket with me, so it was back there. I'm like, oh no! So I'm in my head, a little distracted. And I'm like, okay, Reed, you got this. Breathe, don't throw up. Because what am I going to do? I could have asked for help, of course. I could have um, done a lot of different things. But it's funny. Fast forward till the next morning, we're having breakfast. I'm sitting there with uh, with the shaman, Dave. Amazing, uh, amazing guy. He's and we were just talking about the night, and uh, and I was like, yeah, when you were chanting, I almost threw up a few. Um, he's like, Reed, what the hell were you thinking? Like, let it go through. Why do you think I'm chanting? Uh, why do you think I'm doing this work <laughs> uh, to help things, like, move through you? Mm. So it was, uh, you know, perhaps an illustration of what not to do with uh, that energy <laughs> and the resistance. Yeah, I mean, often those ikaros are actually designed to make you throw up because throwing up is getting rid of some of the hucha, that stuff that's the energy that doesn't serve you. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a different experience, and it's 
part of the healing, like working with the energy. So he was trying to use the Ikaro to do some healing work with you. And it uh, doesn't mean you didn't get healing work. It's yeah. just a different experience. Yeah, I learned a lesson from it. Yeah, and purging happens in different ways, right? I mean, people often talk about vomiting with ayahuasca, but purging can happen through laughter or dance or crying or oh, yeah. spitting or shitting. I remember a shaman <laughs> telling me that if you vomit and poop at the same time, we call that the gold star. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I suggested maybe brownie points would be a better. Oh! He liked that. <laughs> so the first time, the first time I ever drank ayahuasca. In the jungle, uh, my first ceremony ever, um, you know, we drink, sit in silence uh, as a circle in the ceremony, meditating, breathing in the dark, uh, you know, under the stars. And uh, about 30, 45 minutes into it, the uh, shaman starts chanting. People start throwing up, this orchestra of throwing up. Mm -hmm. And for me, what came up was just tears. They just flowed for a very long time. And... The interesting thing, I didn't know where they were from. There wasn't like, you know, uh, a memory or emotional state connected to it necessarily. It was just like, it felt like a, a f release of unshed tears, mm -hmm. a lot of them. Yeah. Mm. And in a really, in a really uh, kind of blissful way. Yeah, tears. What a great, what a great healing. I had a, a not not with ayahuasca, but with psilocybin. I had uh, I had a really powerful healing tears experience. I cried for literally like three hours straight. Wow! <laughs> and I mean, I was completely washed out. But but you know, like cry the the saying "cry a river of tears." I didn't know what that was until that time. Mm -hmm. But uh, boy, was that that was an amazing experience. So, the, I mean, the two of you are talking about moving energy through a person, right? Mm -hmm. that, that seems to be a primary, um, what would you call it, objective of a shaman when they're doing healing work, among other objectives, perhaps. Because mm -hmm. is, is, you mentioned energy and mm -hmm. energy work, and, you know, that there is an, an, I think you call it an intelligent energy in all things, in the world, in us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I loved the, the, the metaphor of a gardener of mm -hmm. energies because mm -hmm. a gardener isn't somebody who like forces their will on their environment. A gardener is somebody who works with the environment to cultivate and create mm -hmm. and create yeah. you know, an environment, a, a nurturing environment so that whatever is there can grow, can maximize its potential. Absolutely. So I like this, uh, this concept of moving energy through because, you know, as a therapist, sometimes I think of it that way when somebody's coming to me for help as they have, emotional energy that's blocked up. Even Freud talked about this hydraulic model of libido, right? Of <laughs> that, that you have these psychosexual stages where libidinal energy gets stopped if you're not moving through the stage with love and support and insight and it gets cathected into these fixations, right? Mm. I think this idea of energy has been present in a lot of the ways we try to understand psychopathology, but just the human mind. Well, you know, I think I think the core of it is that is that we are all connected. Mm -hmm. I mean, there really is no separation. Like in in my in my shamanic work, it's as if I am a cell in a tissue as part of an organism. When I'm when I'm in that state, 
I can feel my place. Like I can feel that that me as a tiny speck of sand mm-hmm. in the beach of the universe. I feel that connection. And and if you if you if you work with the premise that I am in relationship with everything. Every single thing. I'm in relationship with every cell in my body. Like this body, what a gift, what an amazing thing. What a what a wonder it is. You know, I'm in relationship with all of the people whether I have a conscious relationship with them or not. And so if we're gardeners of energy, the way that we approach life and our attitudes is critical. And I would say that you know, the core of the shamanic initiations and shamanic practice is addressing this tension between being embodied, like in a body, feeling separate and different and often special. That also gets in the way. (laughs) uh, And being part of the all. A facet of the great wonder, the creator, you know. We are not separate. We are all completely connected. I'll tell you a story. One of my teachers, Jose Stevens, from the Power Path, tells this story. He's like, imagine this. You're a part of essence, and you decide that you want to have an experience of being embodied in a three-dimensional existence. So... You put on a spacesuit to go into this three-dimensional mm-hmm. experience, but you completely forget that you are a part of essence. Mm. That's our life. That's what being yeah. humans is like. You're like you like go on this research mission to have these experiences in in an embodied three-dimensional existence in this low frequency, dense existence. That makes us feel like, hey, you're there. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like there's something different. And we forget that we are a part of something else. And that's that oh, story wow. really resonates with me yeah. because so much of so much of my personal work and in in you know my personal growth and healing has been trying to tap into that something beyond myself. And shamanism was been a great door into that but yet still having this great time having a body you know mm-hmm. it's it's just a wonder it's just it's fantastic it's as uh, ram das would say the dance between form and formless or maybe alan watts talks about how life is just god the collective playing hide and seek with him or herself right just like you said put on a spacesuit go swim out into this ether, bump into other molecules and forget where we came from. But but I love what you said because that was the biggest takeaway for me on the the psychedelic journey in general is cutting through that illusion of separation. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, this, Alan, <clears throat> what you're talking about has sparked a lot of different thoughts and feelings in me right now. And I, I've I've been thinking a lot about kind of the state of the world. I mean, most of us are, mm-hmm. right? We can't avoid it if we're on social media or watching the TV. And um, 
I can't help but feel like a lot of our problems are at least partially connected to not knowing what you just said, right? Not understanding that we are all connected. And I, yeah. when, when you said it, I can picture the people I know in my mind who would roll their eyes at the statement, oh, we're all connected. All right, get out of here with your hippie bullshit. Mm-hmm. It, it might <laughs> be the nature of the world, though, and that we are actually all connected. And the fact that we've forgotten that has has put us into these silos, these tribes that are trying to protect these wars. Yeah, look what it's created. Yeah, when, now that we we have othered the other people, they are bad because they believe different things than we do, or they, uh, you know, are from different places than we are. And it's like Reed just said. It's it's not only is it make it is the breeding ground for prejudice, but it's the premise upon which we kill each other. It's the root of suffering, right? Mm-hmm. That illusion of separation. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's so true. Um, and, it's, and sorry, yeah. the, the, it, it just also made me think I've heard. So shamans are not uh, angels or, or saints. They're people. And I've heard uh, that in some cases, shamans can be a little territorial. Uh, I've heard of, you know, in South America, this is maybe a complete diversion from what we were just on. So <laughs> you're welcome to, to tell me to shut up, but they... they shut up, Steve. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> well, sometimes, like, you know, uh, try to hex or curse other shamans, and, you know, they get a little upset if they their territory gets tromped, tromped on a little bit. Well, let's just say that shamans are people, too. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like they, you know... Doing shamanic initiations doesn't make you a saint. Right. It's a gathering of power, and you can use it, you know, in a negative way or a positive way. You know, I've, I'm generally on the, like, good witch side of things. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yes, in indigenous cultures, uh, people have been known to, you know, send hexes, or they wouldn't call it that, but, like, arrows to the... But, the problem with that, just like it's no different than social media, when you send something, some yeah. negative thing out onto social media, mm-hmm. it gathers power and then comes right back at you. Yeah, the energy you put out in the world. And it just, and it's, right and it's the same in that way. So if you do like horrible things to some other shaman that you're like in competition with, you know, like try and send something to kill the person, it will usually kill you too. Or you'll suffer because of that. Right. And I I didn't mean to completely change the subject. The reason that came up into my mind was, you know, we were talking about being united and we're all part of one energy. And it's that there's something about this meat puppet that we're in, this spacesuit, that um, causes us to feel unsafe with others that we don't understand and try to, you know, triggers the fear that leads to misunderstanding and and we do violence. Because fear does stem in large part from that feeling of separation mm-hmm. you know even though we've forgotten but it uh, it's interesting when i went down to the jungle for the first time and was um interacting with these shamans they did give this warning that uh that this is an energetic kind of practice and ceremony and energy is power and you have to be careful what you do with it it is like like alan said the attitude uh you take into it and they talked about this red magic that some um, ayahuasca shamans would who have gone to the dark side would use to they gave the example of like 
using um, this energy and power to make someone fall in love with you or something like that mm-hmm. as, as one example, mm-hmm. one of the less, less malignant examples perhaps even. I mean, it's out there. So question, uh, new topic. This is, uh, was Jesus a shaman? Was the Buddha? Was Joseph Smith? Like, how do we conceptualize those kind of things? It's funny you should say that, because uh, one of my friends just uh, wrote a book called Jesus, the Ultimate Shaman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, he's actually like a, uh, comes from a background of like, you know, born-again Christian kind of a person. So mm-hmm. he did like a whole biblical study of it. He's deeply into shamanism, and he was trying to like rectify, you know, how do you... Yeah. There's, it's sort of looked at, you know, a superficial look of, at the Bible would say, absolutely, that's like the work of the devil. But he did the work to say, no, that's not really, even if you look at Scripture. I, I, for me, my first gut intuition, like years ago when I first got into shamanism, was, yes, this is a person that really knew how to do that kind of work. And the the roots of Judaism is was were tribal, and it was a shamanic culture back in the day mm. before it became very law-ridden, which is sort of the development of culture. You know, we go from, like, small clans and everybody's in relationship to, like, everybody comes a specialist, and then the next thing you know... You've got a codification of laws, and everybody's got specializations. So, uh, so I would say yes. I say that some of the great, you know, the Buddha and Jesus were like did real shamanic work, and I think that they were really transformed by being connected to that light. But the kind of work that Jesus did, you know, can be done. It's in that miraculous work is. When you are good, when you really can do that kind of deep work, you know, if, if you do the, you can, you can do miracles. I've, I know people that have been cured of metastatic breast cancer in, in ceremony and shamanic work, and amazing things have happened. It's because our bodies reflect our inner state and our connection mm-hmm. with something beyond ourselves it's i mean it that's a very long-winded subject to go into but i mean psychosomatic medicine is is basically shows that you know our emotional state which is on a lot of levels related to our spiritual state in the world you know manifests in our body our bodies do the best they can but we put them through hell (laughs) yeah and it reminds me of something you said earlier that i found intriguing the connection or the role of madness in the shamanic path in some cultures and historically especially Um, because in the psychedelic literature there's this uh, entropic brain hypothesis that says that uh, you know all of mental health uh, is on this spectrum of um, rigidity over control on one end like anxiety fear um, and to the other end of the spectrum psychosis like uh entropy and that's where the creative connections happen and that's where the psychedelic experience or non-ordinary states kind of take you to where those walls those illusions of separation for the mind for the body for uh our potential of creativity they're gone for a moment so anything can happen Mm -hmm. and uh so 
it gives a new, for me, it gives a, a nice perspective on madness because we do tend to judge that, but it's not so simple. No, I mean, I, I think our society tends to judge madness. We, we, you know, we, we want everybody swatted to be away. A, yeah. We want everybody to be a good citizen. It's like we're going to put you away if you don't, if you're not a good citizen, and if you're acting crazy, that's not showing respect. You know, in some level, it's, you're scary. You're scaring people. Something has to be done. But indigenous cultures wouldn't put people away if they went crazy. They would just create a space that they could just be crazy for a while, and yeah. then watch them. And maybe even learn something from them. And uh, well, and crazy madness is um, contextual. I would think, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's the word abnormal is something something that is not normative. Mm -hmm. So you have most of the people feeling, thinking, and behaving a certain way, and then you have someone who is an outlier. And whether or not that person is insane or mad or this you know one of these words that has a negative connotation maybe has to do with just the particular society that they're in right it's, yeah. is, is this person's behavior inconvenient for society <laughs> well they're sick they have an illness is this person's behavior super entertaining let's give him 30 million dollars to make a movie because you know that's fun for us to watch so there's you know reed and i kind of talked about psychiatric diagnosis a little bit in the last podcast and how it's it's in some ways socially constructed um so you know madness in one ca in one context i'm hearing you say alan may have been uh not only not looked at like an illness but respected and and viewed as uh somebody this person might have something to teach us mm -hmm. so the shamans wouldn't have given britney spears a conservatorship or something like that <laughs> <laughs> maybe not not. That's not to say every person you see who uh, has a mental illness is a shaman and, and you can learn something from them, but I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. But it does show, it does highlight the, you know, the ego structures that get in the way of our connectedness, our creativity, our, like, infinite potential, and are the root of so much suffering that, you know, if we can swim more into that formless state, that unconstrained place... You know, we can touch more into that place of connection where we all are one and where we where healing happens. Mm, right. Absolutely. So, so, Alan, what are some of the tools of the shaman to help people get to that place? Well, um, that basic skill of getting into a non into an altered state of consciousness and non and to, is like sort of key to being part of swimming in that non ordinary reality. Um, Core shamanism um, used the most common um, drivers, which were sound drivers. Um, mm. Drumming at a drumming at like 120 hertz was, has been shown to like alter your EEG. Um, rattling, chanting. I mean, anybody who's participated in drum circle or done some chanting work or has. Um, done some like ecstatic dance or like you know some spinning and spinning and turning around mm -hmm. just like we all did when we were little kids you know around yeah. and around and around until you feel like you're gonna fall down you know though so many things can get you in an altered state and all of them is it's like we are trapped by our thinking mind mm. we're just trapped by our thinking mind and these are ways to like 
get a little bit out of there so that we can see something differently. Um, most, in, most indigenous cultures around the world just used sound drivers. They didn't all use plant medicine. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, but those, those were the most common ones. For me, I did a lot of drumming and rattling. Um, I do. I, I enjoy chanting a fair amount. More recently, I got a harmonium, and really, that, that just like puts me out in you know one with the universe, playing my harmonium and, and chanting. But that's that's a start, and and then the like a meditation practice or any kind of practice, you develop the skill to navigate in that reality to see things differently. So with the with the work you know, doing enough journey work, you get connected with these, we could call them helping spirits, or I would say intelligent energies, and we learn how to work with them. We learn how to see things differently. We learn how to see things that aren't right in somebody's body, or we learn how to communicate with something in nature. You know, we learn that, we learn to dissolve the boundaries but still knowing that they're there that's the difference yeah. between crazy and working shamanically crazy is the boundaries are gone and they're just plain gone mm. and you don't have it you're not grounded you're not oriented at all yeah i mean one of the one of the definitions of you know sh a shaman is like one who walks a foot in both worlds mm -hmm. you know it's like yes. you have one foot in this reality and one foot in non near reality you know where you are in both places and you can navigate that's what always amazed me in my ayahuasca experiences is the shaman being able because they take the medicine more medicine than i did and they're walking around ministering to people and you can I, see how that helps them oh yeah. yeah being able to straddle that line yeah with with medicine or with or with other things that get you in an altered state you have to practice oh yeah you practice and practice and practice and practice developing that inner vision developing connecting with the song mm -hmm. like the um one way of looking at that kind of healing would be the person is absolutely completely whole already they are already healed they're not broken nobody's broken mm -hmm. nobody's broken everybody's completely whole and healed but there may be stuff that's getting in the way of connecting with that so, like, removing stuff that's stuck in their energy field that's keeping it from flowing right. Like, I would say you could see it's one way of looking at it is, like, we are connected to something beyond from the top of our... You've heard of chakras, right? Mm -hmm. I was just okay, well, okay. Chakras, chakras like, the chakras we talk about are the ones that are in our bodies. But they don't end there. They keep going up. Mm -hmm. Like, if you work on that level... They go up, 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 up indefinitely, and then go down into the earth. Mm -hmm. So if you, you develop the inner vision to be able to see, oh, wait a minute, it takes a jag over above the head there, and then it's just not, it's, not, it's yeah. loosely connected. So you work with that to make that flow again. Huh. Or they're not connect grounded. You'd work with that. Or there's something stuck here. It's causing them pain. Or there's a part of them that's like, could be like 
could be represented as a soul loss. It's very popular these days, soul loss, soul retrieval. Everybody wants to go to a shaman and get a soul retrieval. But it's, it's really just that, you know, that little piece is not really gone. It's just not accessible. Like the, I love, mm-hmm. you guys love to talk about uh, internal family systems parts. Dick Schwartz, by listening to him talk, he's like, clearly, I know he's studied with, with uh, uh, Mike Larner and the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. And when I listen to him talk, it's like, yeah, yeah, the parts, that's a very, that construct, that psychological construct and work is <laughs> very much fits with the kind of spiritual healing yeah. that we're talking about. Oh, I love that. Uh, I remember when I um, started to go deep in the yogic practices, the chakras kind of took a new life of these spinning balls of energy that you could kind of tune into, uh, feel into, visualize. And, uh, you know, we talk about the throat chakra where, you know, it might be spinning rapidly in someone who's just blabbing kind of disinhibitedly, or it might be like almost going slow motion if you can't speak your truth and and just all these uh these ways of visualizer i've been in classes where you know you're doing breath work or say um tantric yoga practices you're sending your energy up to the cosmos and back down and it's pretty uh evident when there's a block and you can't do that in Mm -hmm. fact one more story i was in a kundalini yoga class and uh there's this one kriya usually in a class like that where you're going to do uh, a longer practice of some kind and the teacher is like, okay, now we're doing today's kriya. It's like 35 minutes of this pose, like you're splashing water into your face um, while breathing in and out. It's like imaginarily like scooping up water from a river and splashing. I was like, are you kidding me? Is this a joke? Um, so I'm sitting there and I'm doing it. I don't know, five minutes in, 10 minutes in, I'm getting fidgety. And so I I even, during this, and I practiced a lot of yoga, like thousands of hours by then, um, I even got up and went to the bathroom, like running from myself a little bit. But I'm like, okay, I'm going back in. And I think it was like 20-something minutes in when I broke through into this other place. It was just like that formless place where all of a sudden I'm swimming in some other cosmos. And uh, it was a reminder to me of many things, but it, it also highlights, I think, a little bit of what we're talking about here and some of the persistence needed in the practice. Mm. Yeah, pra- it, it, you know, practice, practice, practice. All of these things are practices. Um, if you really want to ground yourself in a week, you know, and every, it, there's no right or wrong we are wherever we are in our practices you know yeah, it's no. a process it's about yeah. it's not about a goal it's about yeah. like when i do my sit every morning my you know meditation practice it's not like i want to get to something it's like this is this is part of my practice and it's just like it it's just just a practice like yeah. there's no goal practice practice and it's like you know if you you're a 25th level whatever you still practice every day, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you like know. we were talking about the other week in how, uh, like, a musician isn't trying to hurry to the end of a song. Yeah. Like, it's uh, about being in it and mm-hmm. making music. <laughs> yeah, the journey is the point. The mm-hmm. journey is the point. And that's, a, that's really 
really a challenging thing in our society. Yeah. Like, and I would say as a person that went through training to become a physician, it's, mm-hmm. you know, almost all of my, you know, life was reaching for some goal. I want to get to that point, and then I want to get to that point, and then I wanted to get to that point. And it's just sort of an endless future tripping that, if you let it, completely eliminates your ability to be present with the here and now. Yeah, that insight has been the biggest gift to me from my practice, my mindfulness practice, my medicine work, um, this insight that the journey is the point. Mm. Um, because, you know, I grew up doing the same thing. Very, very future tripping. I like that phrase. Just, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when. I'll be worthy of praise when, you know, I accumulate, you know, these accolades or accomplish this thing or help this many people. That's when life will be worth it. <laughs> it will be worth living. Just but be here now, Steve. Just Come be on. here now. I know. <laughs> that's that, but that is the insight I keep coming back to. And that's what you mentioned, the practice. You're both talking about the practice. That's my practice is revisiting that insight mm-hmm. and, and feeling it in my body over and over and over again, whether it's deliberate practice or just you know throughout my day when I notice I'm detached from it, is revisiting that. Remembering. Yeah. yeah. Well, Alan, we should have brought our harmoniums in. I have one, and Ooh, that's, that's a portal. Uh, I'm I'm the only person without a harmonium here. We'll give this you is a drum. Bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, my my fantasy instrument is a Rav Vast, the Pandrum. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They are so cool. They're beautiful looking, and you know they they're made in all these different keys. And mm-hmm. uh, I played just... them. Um, my brother has one. We'll bring one of those in too. Oh, I'd love to. Uh, they're amazing. Cause I'm not a percussionist, but it would be fun to learn. Because as a non-musician who really loves music, mm-hmm. um, it's easy to get in my head when I'm like when we're having a jam session or something like that. But with that hand pan, because it's all in one key, mm-hmm. and it's really more like a drumming, like a drum circle experience. Because I don't need to worry about what chord am I playing. I just feel it, um, mm. and uh, and that's why I like the harmonium too. One of the reasons is uh, because it's simple but profound. Yeah. You know, I don't have to worry about you know where my fing- fingers are going across all these octaves. It's about like like being in it. You know, surrounded by sound. Yeah, I was at a uh, a conference when Reed was part of this um, Intermountain Psychedelic Symposium. Back in was it 2019 when we put that on? Or early 2020? I can't remember. Somewhere around there. January, yeah, 2019. Yeah, and so you know it's this fun, interesting amalgam of academics and clinicians, and then like you know hippies that were really interested in psychedelics. You know, this great convergence of these types of people. And so I'm listening to at one moment I'm listening to this sort of university style lecture on the research, mm-hmm. and then. For the breakout session, there was a drum circle. And, you know, you had these guys doing the drums and people standing up and, and dancing. And I'm I'm sitting in the back just kind of observing all this. And I decide, you know what, I'm just going to sort of get into this and start rocking back and forth. And I, I didn't expect to feel anything. And I sort of did a little breakthrough, nothing like you described, but a little breakthrough. And I just started feeling really good. And I, I just started taking notes in my notebook just real quickly, 
these wild notes. Mm-hmm. And I looked back at my notebook after the day was over and my penmanship during the drum circle was like a different person's penmanship. Not just because I was writing fast. It was like I had channeled somebody else or whatever. Interesting. Um, but that was kind of my first experience with a drum circle eliciting this non-ordinary state. Mm. It was probably my, probably my academic talk right before that, the the boring opposite, non how, how dare you, Reed? <laughs> how dare you? That you? I remember your talk actually being really entertaining, and you used uh, the as with the Captain Planet folks like to oh, describe yeah. all the different psychedelics, and I remember really loving that. that Sprinkled with memes, at least. Yeah, yeah. The memes were a great addition. So what is it about sound, you know, or, or why is that such a portal to this non-ordinary state? Well, I think it, I think it's about, it's vibration, mm-hmm. you know, everything is the vibration that, um, even breath is a vibration. Song is a vibration. Singing is a vibration. And, and even though we feel like we're solid, we're just slowed down vibration. Mm. You know, yeah. our frequency is dense enough that we seem solid, but you know, anybody who knows physics and, I'm no expert on physics, you know, would say, you know, we're, we're just, it's just a mental construct that we're solid Mm -hmm. because we're really not, we're just slowed down. Electrons whirling around. Well, maybe next, next time we'll talk about string theory. How's that? Quantum mechanics. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I have a burning question. How do, say, psychiatrists and shamans work together? How did you... How do we bring more shamanism into medicine? Mm. Well, I think I think first of all, it's just it's just um, noting that you know shamanic and spiritual healing practices in general are no substitute for Western medicine, right? I mean, we're not going to throw the the baby out with the bathwater, but you know, most illnesses especially really challenging ones um, have a spiritual component. Mm. And, and that is the part that Western medicine does the worst with is like this, the, like the existential angst of having a really challenging diagnosis or just a whole bunch of diagnoses that are compromising life so much that you feel like you're having a hard time enjoying your day to day. And um, I think that the answer to how do we integrate it more, I mean, I had, I, you know, because I'm a physician and I learned all this shamanic healing work, I had a back door in. I could get away with it. You know, mm-hmm. I could, as long as I was doing my regular medical practice at the top of my license, then when I, when I got a nudge from the universe that this person, say, with a stroke has a pretty significant spiritual component that I could actually broach that and say, yeah, yeah, this is a pretty big deal. And I think that maybe you have a spiritual component to your stroke. And if you wanted to, we could explore that. You know, that was the way that myself as a physician could do it. And and um, when we did shamanism and healthcare conferences years ago, the biggest group of people that came were not physicians and nurses. They were counselors. Mm. That was by far the biggest group of people mm-hmm. because so much of it is language and attitudes. Yeah. And so that's a pretty easy fit there. 
But I think that it's, it's just about raising people's awareness of the whole challenge of being a part of and connected to is part of the healing process, whether it's a physical illness or a mental illness or some kind, you know, some kind of like spiritual life crisis. You know, it's like it's helping people feel connected. I think, you know, right now the big tension in society where we're really feeling more societal tension than than in my lifetime is 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 like we're going from this western culture where you'll feel better if you have enough stuff. Well, isn't that like what toddlers do? If I have enough of my stuff, I'm going to be okay. It doesn't matter. You can go play with your stuff, but I'm going to play with my stuff. So if we're growing as a society, there's this tension between being a toddler and going into young adulthood with the hormones surging and realizing that, you know, I'm connected with you and I don't know how to do relationship. And, you know, there's this, I think that's what we're really dealing with is this growth into into realizing, oh, we are in relationship. How do we navigate that? <laughs> Some of us want to just hold on to our stuff because that's our comfort level. And others are like, oh, I want to take that great leap and trying to understand that other person a little bit more. I think that may be sort of a tangent on your original question, but mm-hmm. I think one. it's about, uh, I think it's really about, you know, noticing that there is a spiritual component to most illness, um, that if we can integrate that into our healing work, we would, we would be better off. It feels like an uphill battle. I think a lot of Western-trained medical professionals are a little allergic to the idea of integrating some kind of spiritual perspective. Not everyone, of course, but a lot of them. Because they're trained in sort of a biological, materialistic, reductionist mm-hmm. perspective. Absolutely. Right? That's the ontology they're trained on, that, it's, that you are the, you know, the, the cells and the meat that makes up you, and so we need to intervene at that level. Mm-hmm. And when they hear spiritual, they think, you know, religion. Because it was yeah. thrown out with the bathwater in the Freud era, especially. Mm-hmm. And we are the opiate we're of the masses. climbing back up the mountain from that, thankfully, slowly but surely. But I could, I could tell you um, there's very little, if anything, that's been more powerful in the healing journeys of the people I've worked with than um, something that you could call spirituality. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of phys- physicians you talk to, and <clears throat> you folks can tell me because you are them, but um, have a, these experiences they would call miraculous, you know, where the, their, everything, all their training could not explain why this person got better. You mentioned the person who was healed from metastatic breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people go to the, to the jungle seeking miracles. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're looking at ayahuasca ceremonies to give them what modern medicine couldn't. And sometimes they find it. Sometimes. How do we explain it if not by adding this spiritual component? This is true. But the other problem is that we is our very limited definition of healing too. Mm. So maybe they mm-hmm. all, maybe every single person who ever went down to the jungle to get ayahuasca got actually got healing, but maybe they didn't get healed of their like terminal degenerative yeah. or you know life threatening illness. 
But sometimes healing is like connecting to something beyond yourself. Maybe that yeah. is the healing. And maybe, you know, our, our narrow definition of body healing is doesn't really serve us well when we're t- talking about the spiritual realm. Um, but, you know, we're all specialists. Physicians are specialists, right? You know, we are taught how to deal with the mechanics of the body. That's, that is our training. And, you know, it's just not in our toolkit to deal with the spiritual aspect of illness. I would say it goes way beyond, way earlier than Freud. It's like back in the 1400s where the church was given the spiritual religious life and then there was science to deal with them. You know, it was Galileo. It was like, and it was like, it's like been separate ever since then. It's like, okay, we got science and we got the godly stuff. And yeah. it's been very separate ever since. And I think we're going to, I think, but what's, I, I do believe that, you know, not long from now, I don't know, but Lord knows what that really means. We will really have a sense that the kind of work that we're doing, you know, even, even in a medical setting, we'll be able to work with frequencies better. You know, we'll be able to do healing work on a more working with frequencies instead of cutting and, you know, replacing hard things or just more like, okay, well, if the body is all different bunch of frequencies and different kinds of things, hmm, how can we adjust that? It sounds woo-woo, but if you think about what medicine was, <laughs> you know, 100 years ago, can you imagine the changes of 100 years from now? Mm. Assuming we're all still around. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, 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 you're right. It is coming back in a number of ways. And like Stan Groff in the a famous psychiatrist of the psychedelic world talks about these psycho-spiritual emergencies. Yes. That's becoming more of a uh, commonly used term. Or you even see like crystal bowls in some cancer centers to heal the disease or disharmony through like nada yoga or sound-based healing practices, um, which is really, really neat. Like we don't really know how acupuncture works, but we know it works mm-hmm. for X, Y, Z, and probably uh, a lot more in ways that we just don't have the tools to understand. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're, you know, we are where we are right now, and the future, well, will take care of itself. But uh, it's very exciting that, um, you know, I think that psychedelic medicine is a, is a, is a catalyst for um, healing people on that level. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that um, with the proper support, people can make the kind of big changes that they really want in their life and potentially affect their physical body, too, in a, in a huge way. Um, yeah, maybe psychedelic medicine, this this renaissance we're experiencing now, is kind of the Trojan horse to bring spirituality and spiritualism back into the healing arts. Not that it's not yeah. there in some context, but you know, no. certainly hasn't been in the mental health field for a while. I think, I think it very well could be. Like we've talked about, it's not really about the medicine, the no. chemical, the molecule. There's, there's a lot more to it beneath the surface, uh, especially around the the ceremony and the the power of these practices and rituals. And uh, in terms of cutting through that separation and suffering that we can experience all too often. Yeah, which is, you know, part of what creates the controversy around these um, organizations that are trying to take the psychedelic experience out of the psychedelic compound. 
You know, they're making psychedelic medicines that don't create a non-ordinary state of consciousness. And, you know, the jury's still out. Those might be very helpful medicines. Um, but they might be, uh, they might be taking out the active ingredient by taking out the experience. Yeah, perhaps it's, uh, we'll have to see about that. I think so much of it is, is about, uh, I'll just share a little bit of one of my most powerful, um, medicine experiences. Um, I had, I had a ceremony where, um, I dreamt that I had a dream. Uh, I was one of those people that I would not want to throw up. And I found that doing the medicine, I was like just not wanting to throw up. And then, and, and I, um, I had, I was preparing for ceremony and I was fasting and I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw an archway of, and it was covered with green snakes. It wasn't threatening at all. It was just an archway. And on the other side of the archway, there was just white light. And in my dream, I just walked through there. And I woke up from that dream and I said, oh, the medicine is preparing me for the ceremony that I'm going to have. Oh. And the message is, let go, just walk through. And at that moment, I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? So what if I throw up? And I realized that I could work with it instead of just trying to do it my way. Mm. And with that, with that, I had a completely different experience. And the, point, the, the one part of that experience that I wanted to say was, so when I did start feeling the medicine working, I said, okay, I want to work with you. I'm going to, and I just kept seeing myself walking through the arch and walking through the arch and walking through the arch. And when I, and when, when I was in the middle of the ceremony, I saw this, I kept being shown like this inner commentator. It's like, and it was, so the medicine's like, who is that person? That's like constantly judging and commenting. Mm. It's like there's like literally like a little the little commentator that's like, that's good, that's not good. Oh, they're not okay. They're okay. Then there's like, where's Alan here? Where's Alan? Who is this person that's talking all the time? And it was, it just showed like my monkey mind just going on mm -hmm. and on and dribbling on and on. And it was like keeping me from being like in my experience right then and there. And I think the point is that it's just, you know, when I can let go of that inner commentator, that e that the ego, that talky-talky, constantly distracted mind, some magic happened. And, of course, that was, like, probably the most powerful ceremony I ever had because at that point I was like, okay, let's do this together. Mm -hmm. And then I had the incredible healing of, like, complete, like, attunement and connection and one with everything it was like it was like just amazing but you know the way we go into things really affects our experience and that the ability to have some self-observation and sort of let go was critical and i and i'm going to put a plug in for my very favorite uh book that is a summary of pretty much every esoteric tradition out there it's called self-observation by red trout 
and he's actually ah. a professor. Um, but there's more packed in that one little book than than all the other books and that I've ever seen. It, it's absolutely amazing, and uh, he, you know, basically has a just a practice of self observation, which so many practices do. But it, the way he tells it and has really funny poetry in it too. It's just it's a very dense book. I couldn't it took me six months to read it, but wow, it was amazing. It's, you know, the ability to take a look at yourself and just sort of like, oh, is that so? Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. So we'll <laughs> we'll link to that book in the show notes, but it makes me wonder, are there other resources you could point our listeners to? Um, resources, uh, um, written material, if somebody wanted to find a shaman or an organization to do this work? Sure. Um, so... Um, the, my, the original place that I studied core shamanism was the, um, foundation for shamanic studies, the foundation for shamanic studies. That's Michael Harner's organization. And they have teachers all over the country and all over the world. And they give workshops on core shamanic techniques. You learn how to journey and work with the spirits of nature and do all these different kinds of healing techniques. They, so that's one organization. For if you if you have an interest in shamanism uh, and you feel like you want to, you know, rub elbows with people on the shamanic path, whether you, you know, have a deep interest or just a casual interest, the organization um, that I helped found called the Society for Shamanic Practice, um, uh, they have a website and they're an educational body and they're, what they have that none of the other shamanic organizations have is they're not attached to a specific school or a teacher. You know, it's like there's core shamanic people. There's people that do indigenous shamanism in there. You know, there's people that do shamanic crafts and all of that. So there's sort of like, you can just, there's a lot of learning. There's uh, audio uh, files and articles. Like if you want to hear about like, oh, what should you look for? If you want to have like a, you know, an, uh, a psychedelic experience and you know what do you want to look for for a shamanic healer um if you want another organization that uh if you want to find a teacher a shamanic teacher um sandra ingerman's organization is uh shamanic teachers dot org i believe it's called mm. um and uh, she's got a great cadre of people that do healing and teaching work um, primarily core shamanism. Um, the organization that I that I uh, that I do a fair amount of work in, that's more indigenously based wisdom, would be called the Power Path. That's um, Jose and Lena Stevens uh, and Anna Harrington, their daughter. The Power Path. They have um, they have a fantastic monthly forecast and put out tons of articles. Um, that one, um, there is, and Jose is a, has uh, put out a lot of uh, books, Jose Stevens, and so has uh, Sandra Ingerman. Sandra Ingerman uh, has done all, she's probably written the most about soul retrieval. Um, those are, those have been the organizations mm -hmm. that I've been uh, very involved in. There are many of them out there. One that has a local office is the Four Winds. Uh, I think it's in the Four Winds Institute. That's um, Alberto Villaldo. 
his organization. Also more of a rooted in indigenous wisdom, but also he has sort of his energy work school also. So those are all places uh, that you can find them. And here, you know, locally we have plenty of shamanic teachers and healers. Um, Local to Utah, for you you folks who don't know where we are. Yep. Uh, Any red flags that people should be looking out for as they, you know, look for information or practitioners to work with? I think do your homework. There are a lot of people that, like, will call themselves shamanic practitioners that have, like, done a weekend workshop. Um, So, I mean, if I were going to look for a practitioner, I would probably go to uh, Sandra Ingerman's website um, or the Power Paths website or the Foundation for Shamanic Studies because those people have all been vetted um, the most um, and have a lot of experience and training. do your homework, talk to other people. Uh, anybody who's like, if you want to get healing work, if anybody says you need a like series of 10 sessions for sure and you got to prepay, better run, <laughs> run the other way. Um, it's the chiropractor model. <laughs> no <laughs> offense like to that. you chiropractors out yeah, there. Um, you know, there are, there, there are plenty of people out there that are doing spiritual healing work that haven't done their own work, so buy your mm-hmm. beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I would Buyer say beware. Buyer beware. well thank you thank you for sharing all this with us for being here for your energy it's been it's been incredible to uh, share some time with you well thanks for inviting me this has been an absolute lovely romp through the woods thanks <laughs> yeah it's been a delight thank you dear listener for listening it means a lot to me Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, skating criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.